0: What is
1: And before we get into our program, I just want to say hello and offer some thanks and gratitude to a listener, I think a fairly new listener, Veronica Pino. Veronica Pino from Schenectady, New York. She writes to us, I was listening to Light of the East and fell in love with the program, plus the heavenly hymns. I love that music and was wondering if you could send me a brochure of all the music available and other materials. Well, we can certainly do that. The music you hear on Light of the East is original. It's the choir from my parish, Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish in Homer Glen, Illinois, and it was under the direction of Timothy Wood's. And the music you hear, because it's original, meaning original, originates from our parish, our own parish choir, but it is ancient chant, the chant of the Byzantine church, in particular, the Byzantine church as it was practiced and observed for centuries in the Slavic lands, the area of Central and Eastern Europe, such as Slovakia, Ukraine, Hungary, that area. They had their own form of chant, which they built upon from the Greek chant, the original Greek chant, because you see in the Slavic lands that follow the Byzantine rite, they were evangelized by Greek-speaking missionaries, in other words, Byzantine missionaries from Byzantium, which later became Constantinople, which is today modern-day Turkey, and to be specific, Istanbul, Turkey but it used to be Constantinople and before that Byzantium. So when it became a very great Christian center in the fourth century, the missionaries went from there to the Slavic lands, and some of them in particular were St. Cyril Methodius, two marvelous brothers who were named co-patrons of Europe by St. John Paul II, along with St. Benedict, who already was a co-patron of Europe. So they brought the Byzantine style of Chant and liturgy and spirituality to the Slavic lands. The Slavic people adopted it and then adapted it and developed it together with their own indigenous chant. They're sort of like their folk music and so on. And what happened was we ended up then with a chant that is called the people's chant. And in the Slavonic language, it's called prostopenia, which means plain chant. In other words, the people chant because the people make the liturgy, they sing throughout the entire liturgy in a kind of a dialogue between the people and the priest. And then they began to develop that chant with some choral arrangements. And this was influenced by Italians and also by the Russians. And so we end up now with... Some of the beautiful choral chant music, the harmonic music you hear, as well as the plain chant that you hear on this program that you will hear if you come to various Byzantine Catholic parishes, including my own of Annunciation, which you're always invited to, Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish in Homer Glen, Illinois. Our doors are open every day, all day. They only close at night, late at night. Otherwise, they're open early in the morning. They still open all day. We have never closed those doors in over 20 years that we've been in existence in Homer Glen, Illinois. So you're always welcome to come and pray and to attend services and be a part of this chant. Notice I didn't say, listen to the chant, be a part of the chant, because you join in with the chant, with the choir and the cantors to make the liturgy happen. So once again, a thank you to Veronica Pino of Schenectady, New York, and thanks for joining us as one of our listeners. We always enjoy hearing all of you, and you can write to us by, well, there's several emails, one of them being FrThomasLoya at AOL.com or TaborLife at Earthlink.net. Those are a couple of the emails you can use if you want to email us. Now, during Lent, we return to not only the Bible, but we return to our monastic soul, our monastic centers, meaning the center of our heart and soul, our being, Is actually monastic. You see, Pope St. John Paul II said that monasticism is the reference point for all of the baptized. Now, what would he mean by that? The reference point for all of the baptized. And during Lent, we actually visit that and affirm that reality and live that reality in a special way. Now, we should live it all the time, every day, even if you're married. That's right. Even if you're a married person, you should be a good monk. In fact, St. John Chrysostom, a great Byzantine saint, said that about married couples. You need to be good monastics. Now, what in the world do we mean by all this? Well, what is monasticism? Well, from the word mono, meaning one, it means first and foremost, singular focused on Jesus Christ, That that is what is number one in our life, the overarching focus of our attention, even if we're married, especially if we're married. The best way to have a happy, long marriage, sacramental marriage, is for the couple to be, in a sense, good monastics. Meaning, first of all, they put Christ first. Even in the reading for the marriage ceremony that we have in the Byzantine Church from Ephesians 5, it says, defer to one another out of reverence for Christ. So right away, both are being asked to defer to Christ first and then to practice that deferential love with one another. But it first must stem from a singular focus on Christ. Now, the monastics do that in a very complete and radical way. That's why they are celibate. They take the vow of celibacy and, of course, poverty and obedience. So their lives are completely turned over to making Christ the focus, the number one and overarching focus. And in that way, monastics make present on earth what will be in heaven, as St. John Paul II called it, our virginal reality. We all become the one bride of the bridegroom Christ in heaven. And that is realized on earth in part by monasticism. The second part about monasticism is it has to do with a deferential love, which a married couple needs to have for one another. In other words, always making it first and foremost about the other, having a very strong sense of community, even though you're individuals. You always remain individuals, but you're in community. Marriage is a union and community of persons. Well, so is monasticism. Even when there are monastic hermits, which are rare and a special kind of monasticism, nonetheless, they would still come together at times in community. So, becoming a union and community of persons in deferential love is what married people do, but it's also what monastics do. It also, prayer. Couples need to pray together, not just go to church together. That's, that's of course, great. That's wonderful. Must do that. But you must pray together, if it's only a little way, a little prayer a day, or maybe something further, some of the divine office, the rosary, the Jesus prayer do something together, especially during Lent. That's another aspect of monasticism. Monasticism also involves a certain restraint, a certain self-discipline, and that's why we fast during Lent. And that discipline of saying no to our fallen passions, not letting our passions, our appetites on whatever level rule us, that's what monastics do their whole life. We do that in a particular way during Lent, But again, all these monastic practices of Lent should stay with us after Lent. We should be on a monastic trajectory. That's right. Even if you are married, that's right. You have to have the monastic element, the monastic disciplines in your marriage. That's what will make the marriage happy, guarantee you. It's the lack of that that oftentimes is the root of a lot of problems in marriage because The couple, individually or as a couple, are not, first and foremost, singularly focused on Christ, nor are they practicing deferential love, having that sense of the communion of persons. There's expectations and selfishness, and that's what breaks the marriage down. The crowning statement of a married couple should be, gee whiz, that that man, that husband, that father, he would have been a great monastic, a great monk, a great priest, Conversely, and as well, they should say of the wife, she would have been a great nun. And conversely, again, the crowning statement on a monastic, a vowed celibate would be he would have been a great father and husband, or she would have been a great nun, a great mother superior. Those complimentary compliments are the crowning statements, respectively, on the two vocations of marriage and marriage and religious life you notice they're two sides of the same coin they live by the same principles just in different ways so monasticism is the reference point for all the baptized even if you're single you have to live in a very monastic way very reminiscent of monasticism you have to live chastely you have to live a life of self-discipline and yes you do defer to others in love in your own way even as a single person so when we speak of monasticism, we're speaking really of the norm. That's right. We we sometimes think of monastics as extraordinary, out of the ordinary. Boy, I could never be a monk giving up all that stuff. Well, giving up is never something we do just by itself, such as during Lent. We just don't give up things. Basically, giving up is not a negative choice. It's a positive choice it's an affirmative choice. Anytime we make a choice in one direction, we necessarily go away from the opposite direction. So the monastic makes a choice for a more pure, more fully human, more centrally, singularly focused life. And in doing so, naturally, of course, they choose away from that which distracts them from that singular focus. And so the monastic choice is something that belongs to all of us by virtue of the fact that we are all baptized. We all assume the same baptismal promise and we are to choose time and again on small levels or on large levels to live according to that choice, to ratify that choice, whether we are married or vowed religious. It all comes down to that baptismal promise. So let's be good monks during this Lenten season. For what's left of it, we're a little more than halfway through it. So let's really focus as monks do on what is essential. We're gonna talk about a couple of monks when we return. There'll be guides to help us to become ourselves good monks. I'm Father Thomas Loyal on Light of the East
2: We'd like to congratulate another longtime EWTN partner, Billings Catholic Radio in Montana. They're celebrating their 10th anniversary. A special thanks to Roy Brown and his team at Billings Catholic Radio. They started with one station in Billings and are now evangelizing, educating, and inspiring listeners on three signals in Billings and Laurel. Again, our congratulations to Billings Catholic Radio, now celebrating 10 years of solid Catholic radio in Montana. This is Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione of the Archdiocese of San Francisco, and you are listening to Light of the East. This Lent, think
0: about what the cross means to you. To paraphrase Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, avoiding the cross is the essence of the demonic. When finally our Lord was on the cross, Satan had one last chance to oppose the cross. Through his agents, he challenged our Lord Jesus, Come down and we will believe. We'll believe anything you want. Just come down. Well, Jesus did not come down. He chose to hang, bleed, and die there out of love for you, to save you. This Lent, let's ask ourselves, am I one who asks Jesus to come down from the cross? Or do I embrace my cross, following Jesus and in loving others radically and sacrificially? I'm Jim Littleton, forming faithful families. God love you.
1: Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas O'Leary, your host, trying to serve as your guide through the rigors of Lent, but also calling upon guides far greater than me. The two monastics that are put in front of our eyes in the Byzantine liturgical calendar during the Lenten season. The first one, which we had last week, was St. John Climacus. Now, St. John Climacus lived in the 8th century and He was a very holy man, of course, and he understood and was able to teach and articulate the stages, in other words, the process for the growth in holiness. And because he was so holy and he was able to articulate that and exemplify that, he was actually asked, basically against his will, to write it all down. Well, so he did. He wrote it in what is known today as the Ladder of Divine Ascent, which is basically the stages in the progress of the spiritual life, and he writes about things like humility and obedience and repentance and prayer. So the ladder of divine ascent is a—it's actually a, an easy read. It's a very interesting read, but it's it's very easy done because it's done in little steps and stages. He actually numbers them, and so it's it's very handy to use as a guide in your spiritual life because you can focus on the different rungs of the ladder individually it's it's very easy to focus on on each one individually because they're numbered and they're not necessarily very long some are a little longer than others but most of them are fairly short and to the point but very very practical he was very spiritual and practical he was practical because he was spiritual and vice versa again the two go together so saint john climacus is put before our eyes on the fourth Sunday of Lent, and on the fifth Sunday, which is this Sunday, we focus on a female monastic, another giant of the spiritual life, and her name was St. Mary of Egypt. Now, this past week, what we did was we read her story in the middle of the great canon of St. Andrew of Crete, that great penitential service that we do during the fifth week of Lent during Thursday evening. During the first week of Lent, we divided up that service— during the first three or four nights of Lent, and then we revisit that service in its entirety all together in one evening. It takes about three and a half to four hours, including the reading, and there's about 200 prostrations that we do during that service. Now, that, I know, seems kind of extreme or frightening, but I always tell people, as I will tell you, you can be any part of that service. You can stay for an hour, two hours, half hour, whatever, but it's great to at least experience that and that service at the saint andrew crete takes us through the entire scripture and focusing on through chant and meditation every aspect of the bible that has to do with sin and redemption and repentance it's amazing it's a it's like getting an honorary phd in biblical scholarship once you're done with that service. Also, you get pretty much in shape, too, because doing 200 frustrations, is, it's pretty rigorous. But in between, we pause and read the story of St. Mary of Egypt. It's a fascinating story. I often think it would be a great opera or a great movie or stage play, because there's this magnificent dialogue and experience that occurs when this monk, Zosimus, who goes off into the desert during the Lenten season—that was the custom of the monks they would go off into solitude during the Lenten season and then return on Palm Sunday to the monastery. So as he went off, being an obedient monk, he comes across this figure of somebody that sort of whips by his eye, and he thought to himself, I think I just saw a naked woman. I'm not really sure. Well, sure enough, it was. It was Saint Mary of Egypt. And she was a woman who was at one time a young, very sinful woman, a prostitute, and One day, she followed a bunch of pilgrims to Jerusalem, to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, or the Church of the Holy Cross, whichever you want to call it. It's the place where Jesus died on the cross and rose, and there's a magnificent church built over that, which pilgrims have been coming to for centuries. And she tries to enter that church, but some force stops her. She becomes very upset. She tries again, and it stops her. And she looks up at an icon of the Virgin Mary that is over the door and she cries and prays to it. And suddenly she's able to enter into the church and she becomes converted and she runs away and she goes off into the desert for the next 40 years. And she becomes emaciated, living on hardly any food at all. And no one sees her till Zosimus finally finds her. When he listens to her story, she asks him to come back one year later, but not to come to the exact spot because the, the exact spot is cross the Jordan River. She said, stay on the one side of the river. So he listens to what she wants, but she also requests that he come back with the Eucharist because she has not received Eucharist in 40 years. So Zosimus listens to her. The following year, on Holy Thursday, because that's what she requested. St. Mary of Egypt requested that it be on Holy Thursday when we celebrate the institution of the Eucharist, you know, the mystical supper, the Last Supper. She asks him to bring the precious body and blood of Christ to her. So Zosimus does. So he comes to the edge of the river, stays there, as she told him, with the Eucharist, and she comes across that river walking on water. That's right, she walked on water. She receives the Eucharist. And then she tells him to come back once again to that spot a year later. So he does. And this time he finds her dead with a little note that she left there next to her saying that after she received the blind blood of Christ is when she died and that she was asked to be buried there. So Zosimus buries her there, but he's he's trying to bury her and he has a hard time doing it, digging the hole by himself. So a lion comes by at first he's a little frightened, but the lion actually comes by and helps him dig the hole. Because you see, Mary of Egypt became so holy, she could be at peace even with the wild animals there in the desert. And so, Zosimus buries her, goes back to the monastery, and tells the story to the other monks. And Zosimus' story has been told to this day. Every year, during the fifth week of Lent in many Eastern churches, a story of a great repentant sinner who acquired special graces by her repentance that she could even walk on water. And what did she want most of all? And would allow our Lord or ask our Lord to dismiss her from this world like Simeon when he beheld Christ? When she received the Bible of Christ, that's when she wished and hoped that her life would now end. There was nothing else for her on this earth. And sure enough, our Lord took her After years of repentance, and took her after receiving his most precious body and blood. And this is what our repentance, our Lenten preparation is about, like St. Mary of Egypt. Really preparing to return to the Eucharist, to that resurrected body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist on Pascha, on Easter, to come back to it with a renewed appreciation. This is what Lent is doing for us, helping us to become transformed, to be purified, to be more moderate, to be released from the tyranny of our fallen passions, to open ourselves up to union in a whole new way of appreciation with the body and blood of Christ, the resurrected Christ. And during this time, as we prepare for that, we take a new look at a Eucharistic view of everything. That's what monks do. Amongst monks are contemplative. It doesn't mean that you're not active. We don't make that distinction in Eastern churches. You're active and contemplative all at the same time. You have to be able to contemplate in order to act, and your actions inform your contemplation. We become contemplative during Lent. That's why we give up things, especially things that have to do with screens, like TVs and phones and stuff like that. We back away from that or give some of it up altogether so that we can make more room for the Holy Spirit in us, for what is really essential, and renew our vision of everything that is more sacramental, more Eucharistic, more liturgical, more mystical, more Christian. Lent is our immersion into our monastic experience, but it should not remain with us just during Lent. It should remain with us for the rest of our lives because monasticism is the reference point for all the baptized. Thanks for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To
2: hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit ByzantineCatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. to EWTN
1: for inspiring Lenten programming.
0: This is Father Thomas Petrie, Godly Counsel on Morning Glory. Lent is a time of spiritual renewal when the church journeys with Christ, who is both God and man, and in his humanity can suffer, can be hungry, can sacrifice just as much as we can, in fact, even more. So during this Lenten season, we give things up in our penance to journey with him. We pray more to come closer to Him, and we give alms so that, like Christ, we can offer something up for the poor, Christ who offered Himself up for us. During this Lenten season, all of us at EWTN Radio are praying that you have a holy and blessed season to grow closer to Christ as we prepare for the Paschal celebration.
1: Lenten programs now through Holy Thursday on EWTN Radio and TV.